When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, We've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Ready? Play. Well, hello there. And welcome to Talking Tennis. WTA Weekly is back. Um, very pleased to uh, be talking to you all again about um, the absolutely fantastic um, tournament that we've had at Roland Garros in the uh, the women's draw. Very, very privileged to be joined by um, Caitlin Thompson of Racket Magazine and Podcast Fame. Hello, Caitlin. <laughs> How are you doing? Podcast Fame is maybe a stretch, but happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Oh. It's a very, uh, it's a very popular podcast. I think it was listed as one of the um, ten best po- tennis podcasts out there on an article I read at some point. Oh, so uh, great! Well, our our fan or fans are pressing play a lot, which I appreciate. Definitely, and uh, it's definitely a good, um, definitely a good listen. Um, so obviously, we're here to talk about um, everything that uh, happened at. Roland Garros in the uh, women's draw. So um, what we're going to do, just to let everyone know, is um, we're going to just have a look at the big picture of uh, maybe the end of the tournament and then zero in a little bit on each of the semi-finalists and then uh, maybe just um, see if we've got time for any other questions from uh, the chat at the end, um, should we have anything. And uh, a question I will probably have for you at the end, uh, Caitlin, is also going to be... um, any other stories that you would like to highlight that maybe we don't cover in um, we initially uh, in our initial discussions, which will be mainly focused on the semi-finals onwards and the players involved. Sure. Um, so just as a just as a heads up, so get, um, rather than putting you on the spot um, at the end. Uh, so, Roland Garros. I think we can safely say that uh, the last few days of the women's tournament was an absolute blockbuster um, to brilliant semi-finals, a fantastic final. How good was the spectacle that women's tennis gave us at the end of the tournament? I mean, I 
can't really say enough about the parody of the women's tour. And the good news is that I don't have to when we have draws as just chock-a-block with credible players who can go deep, the variety, the some of the storylines. You know, I think I've been a fan of women's tennis for a very long time and seeing um, specifically the variety of styles and the really intriguing matchups that happened in the semifinals specifically. Right here, we're looking at Iga Svantec's match against Beatrice Haddad Maia. And listen, Haddad Maia, a Brazilian making her first semi and putting up a very credible fight against Iga Svantec, who I don't think has lost, at least not until the finals this year, had lost a set on uh, the red clay of Roland Garros since I could remember, um, you know, and making that a real battle as well as, thank you, uh, that accent I picked up from Renee Stubbs who learned how to pronounce Hadaj Maya's name correctly. Um, and then obviously Carolina Mukova is somebody that I think a lot of us who pay a lot of attention to women's tennis and have a lot of affinity for the more all court style games. Uh, really have been rooting for and aware of Carolina Mukhova for a couple of years now. We, I think most of us got to know her on grass when she upset Carolina Pliskova, who is very hard to beat with her giant serve and Mukhova's all-court game, her ability to draw Pliskova to the net, hit drop shots, and really, you know, utilize the entire dimensions of the court was something that I think a lot of us were sort of excited to see a couple of years ago when she had that breakthrough. Obviously, her being able to translate that to clay, her least favorite surface, but one that has seen her get the farthest in a grand slam by beating Arena Sabalenka. Sabalenka was at match points. I thought Sabalenka was probably the favorite to win this tournament just because she had so much energy and momentum and seemed to really leave a lot of demons of the past behind um, in winning her Australian Open title earlier this year. She had a match point in this in this match, and sometimes when somebody's up a match point and up a considerable um, by a, a considerable you know distance, which she was in the third set, you think, oh, it was a mental collapse. And she didn't play a fantastic end of the match, but Mukova just played lights out, amazing. I think she won something like twenty of the last twenty four points, and really didn't give Sabalenka a chance to even compete on her match point. The serve that Mukova hit, and Mukova's almost as tall as Sabalenka. They're both giant women. Mukova hitting uh, just flat out incredible serve out wide. Arena Sabalenka could barely get a racket on it. And that was match point down. And then from then on, she just looked like a woman inspired and really played some of her best tennis at the last sort of two, three games of the match. So again, coming into the final, we had just two amazing matchups, two amazing battles, and really a lot of style and variety and backstory on display. Um, like I said, with Hadaj Maya, it was great to see a South American making it super far in a tournament. I think those of us who have been waiting for this moment for South American women to really make a, a great appearance late in a slam had to look back to your Gisela Dolcos or probably honestly even further back to Gabriela Sabatini to when like I was a kid. So it's really cool to see both on the men's and the women's side, so many South Americans really credibly making it deep into the tournament. And yeah, I think your question is a good one. Women's tennis is spectacular and this, the variety and the depth of the field is really what excites me the most. And you've just listed everything that I love about women's tennis, which is <laughs> yeah. the variety, the different game styles on play, which you're quite right were all at play in the semi-finals. In all four semi-finals play the game very differently. Totally. Um, 
the stories involved, the depth of talent within the field, um, the battles you can have all the way through the draw. I mean, generally a women's first round of a major is more interesting than the men's in terms of potential matchups you can get with some really dangerous unseeded players, far more out there. Um, so, yeah, and uh, yeah, the, as you said, the variety on display, you've got the, the power game of Sabalenka, the variety of Mukova, um, the high top spin um, of uh, Sviontek, the uh, Haddad Meyer's just um, absolute um, just resilience <laughs> and endurance uh, as highlighted by having played in multiple long matches this year. Uh, totally. Yeah, she <laughs> loves the battle. I mean, I think even if you telescope out to the round that preceded it, we still had, you know, your, your Ons Jabers in the draw. Uh, he, there was a note just now about Maria Sakari maybe not liking first rounds. Caroline Garcia probably wouldn't like uh, the first one or two rounds either just because, you know, anybody can beat anybody on any given day. And that's always been used as a knock against the women's tour. Um, but the truth is in a game, and especially on a surface where a giant serve helps you less, because everybody can return. The other way to look at it is every game's in play. It's not just a matter of who gets the break first or who blinks first or who has, um, you know, an unexpected lapse in concentration because every point is in play and every point is in contention. I was really sad not to see Ons win that match against Hadaj Maya just because she was up, uh, which has started to become a bit of a pattern with Ons. Obviously, those of us who remember last year's Wimbledon when she was up a set and well into the, the second set against Elena Rubikina before sort of kind of stopping to present solutions. And Rubikina just kind of started hitting through her. I would argue that Ons Jabur's match against Iga Sviantek at the US Open was not really competitive until more than halfway through the second set when Ons sort of finally showed up and, and started to compete. You know, for me, what I love so much about her game is not only how much of an all-quarter she is, but she's very human. And I think the the downside to being very human is that she doesn't um, necessarily meet the moment with the best tennis, which is again, like it's, if you watch only the men's tennis, you mm -hmm. sort of come to expect that everybody's a cyborg, but the truth is it makes the moments of victory for somebody like Anstruber that much more special because you know that like it was with Sabalenka, watching her work through a lot of her demons, having the yips on her serve and having Grand Slam after Grand Slam after Grand Slam, where she was stopped short in the semifinals. This year at the Australian Open, when she made it and then broke through, it became so much more exciting to watch because you got a sense of knowing what it meant to her. That's something that I'm hoping for with Ons Juber going into the grass season, um, because I think she was a little bit underbaked for this uh, for this tournament in in France, and I think Hadaj Maya certainly took advantage and gave us a really good battle against uh, a, a very dominant Iga Swiatek. Yeah. Absolutely. And so the, those semifinals, brilliant. I think um, it, uh, going to the other one, uh, Mukova Sabalenka, I think straight after everyone was calling it what candidate for match of the year. Um, I think the final may not quite hit the number one spot, but I think it should be a contender as well, just for, I loved the, seeing the variety at play. I loved seeing Mukova soaking up and throwing back at Sviantek everything that Iga was throwing at her. Um, and uh, But yet still, Sviantek managing to reverse the trend right at the death and find that level to win a Grand Slam again. Um, 
Yeah, I mean, beautiful. I think it was remarkable. I, I also didn't, as much as I like Mukova's game and as much as I think those of us who are real like tennis aficionados have been kind of rooting for her because her style harkens back sort of to like a Justine Henna or, um, you know, some of these players who have the ability to really hit a devastating slice, follow up with a great net game, kind of like Ash Barty. Um, you know, I didn't rate her chances much against Iga Swiatek, just because, in my opinion, despite the fact that she's got this wonderful all-court game, she cannot really blast through Iga the way that Arena Sabalenka can. Um, and so for that reason, and for the first set and three love, I thought the match was sort of a disaster. I thought it was a tragedy. And I was openly opining on Twitter, where I can get into some hot water, uh, about how much I wish that we were watching Arena Sabalenka play against Igor Svantec just because it would have been a better matchup. You know, tennis really is about the matchups. Um, you know, ask Maria Sakkari all about that because she is who Mukova beat in the first round. And it was heralded as an upset, but anybody who knows anything about tennis would have called that an even match at best. Um, and probably given the, the odds to Mukova, just given the way that Sakkari's season has been unfolding. So I think for me, the, the real unexpected pleasure of the final was how much Mukova competed, how she got a set off Iga, which doesn't happen very much, and that she made Iga look scared. She made her look mm. tense and anxious, and she has been so in command and so determined. And the way she plays tennis, frankly, leaves me a little bit cold just because it's so efficient and competent, but it lacks a little style or flair. Um, and I think what I liked about this final was that Mukova, because she really took back the sort of onus of the match, got that second set and made the third set extremely competitive, it sort of forced Iga into a more compelling situation, a more compelling context where she was actually having to uh, sort of play a little bit like the underdog or at least the... the um, play from behind, which she so often is not, you know, if you think back to last year's French Open final where she played against uh, Coco Goff, who again, great athlete, great person to have on the tour, amazing, amazing addition to the, the variety and the um, backstories of, of this amazing echelon of women who make up the, the WTA tour. But I think for those of us who know her game, not much to hurt ego with. Um, and Iga didn't look uncomfortable or, out of place for most of that match. Compare that to this year's final where she was in trouble and we saw something new. So not the outcome necessarily I wanted. I prefer to hear, uh, to see the the all quarters win against a really competent defender. That said, you can only play the game that's in front of you and um, real credit to Iga for making that last couple of games just absolutely you know, airtight in terms of her play and how she didn't lose focus. Bukova played a style of game that is more aggressive, is more exciting, and frankly, one that I vastly prefer, but it comes with risks and it comes with the, you know, with the risk reward ratio that if it's not extremely carefully managed can, you know, very easily go into your opponent's hands. Yeah. I absolutely. And uh, I, I agree. I think it was the way Iga tightened up in terms of, um, not tightened up in terms of getting more nervous, but um, took more control, given that she'd kind of lost it at the beginning of the third yeah. set. You know, she went down a break twice um, and kept having to fight back. That was impressive. Um, totally. Would you say that this was her hardest major win or would you say this maybe US Open was harder? I don't think the US Open was harder. I think this was definitely harder, not only in terms of the scoreline, but also in terms of the certainty 
of victory. I think, you know, Ons can hurt Iga and that matchup is a compelling one, but it's only a compelling one if Ons really shows up. And as we've seen from her, sometimes those lapses in concentration, she'll bail out of points. Her commitment to playing her game style can waver. And again, that makes her really compelling to me because it's very human. And frankly, it's really relatable. It's probably the only part of the game that I find relatable because the rest of her game is just so excellent. But the emotions and the roller coaster that she can kind of go through is relatable. The, the finals of the U.S. Open was never in doubt. Ons just played it a little bit tighter towards the end of the match and made you wonder, oh, if this Ons had shown up the entire time, then maybe we'd be watching something a little bit more compelling. This match was really interesting. And I think to your point, much more of an accomplishment for Iga because she was legitimately pushed and it was impressive to see her respond as she did with, as you said, tightening her game, but not her uh, sort of emotions. She, she didn't get more anxious. She got more controlled and she got to a place where she was taking, I think, probably bigger risks than she needed to at other stages of the match. But at that point in the match, she needed to be both aggressive and also consistent. So I, I really like the way she managed that match. It was a very mature win. Um, mm. And again, I think one of the great things about watching the greats play is you can see them evolve in real time. And Iga does something that I find really difficult, which is play well as a front runner. Um, I think it's a little easier to play when you don't have the expectations on your shoulders. That was certainly Carolina Mukova's um, position coming into this match. Nobody really expected her to be there, um, except, you know, again, only a few people who really sort of see her having a very high ceiling, which, you know, I'm one of them, but she didn't have any pressure. But it, because of that, she didn't have an experience. And I think what we saw today was, uh, you know, in the aftermath of the, of the final, just uh, a real appreciation for how much that experience and how much that evolution has happened, if not in Iga's game, then certainly in her emotional response. She panicked and then she took control. And I think you can't always control if you panic and have a moment where your opponent is kind of taking the, the racket out of your hands because they're doing such great stuff, but you can control how you respond. And I think for me, that was, you know, again, really, really a mature performance that, that was, if not like the most fun for me personally, then, you know, an absolute achievement and something that I think marks her, her most impressive Grand Slam to win to, uh, today. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. And this sets up a question because she's now won three of the last five majors in singles. Um, is this the eager era or is Roland Garros its own, uh, in its own bubble for her? It's a good question. I think the answer might be yes to both of those, but I certainly think that this is more likely a, I mean, it's hard to make a comparison to Rafa Nadal, given what he has done on clay in our sport, specifically at the French Open. But I think her vast preference is on clay. And I think it'll be interesting. And I'm excited to watch her expand her repertoire and build her game onto grass specifically. Obviously, she's already won the US Open, but it's not her favorite surface the way that this is. 
And so I think for that reason, she's certainly not the favorite at Wimbledon. I wouldn't even rate her in the top 10 to lift that trophy. Her movement, which is impeccable on clay, doesn't really help her all that much on grass because the footing is that much more uncertain. And so for me, <laughs> Rafa maybe doesn't like that comparison, but I do think on clay, she's the closest thing we have to an heir apparent. On grass, however, um, you know, just as Rafa had to really work to shorten his backswing to get his net game, which has always been really excellent and I think underappreciated, but really get it to a position where he could, um, you know, be aggressive in those points. He evolved, and I think what's cool is that we have the opportunity to watch Iga evolve. That said, unlike Rafa, who really by the time he was contending for Wimbledon's was already facing a Roger Federer who was kind of on the wane, um, Iga has two incredibly difficult opponents in the forms of Arena Sabalenka and Elena Rybakina, who won um, last year's Wimbledon. And... You know, I would also put Ons up there as somebody who, you know, made the finals and who is a very credible threat to go deep again. I don't love Ego's chances on grass, but I also think that that's what's cool about tennis is the way that Novak Djokovic really started by specializing in one event, one surface, and then improved his game and now is the threat everywhere and is the expected victor. I think that could happen for Iga. And let's see how she how she develops her game further to be more effective on these other surfaces because clay, you know, very very little to improve. Yeah, and uh, I agree with you. I'm looking forward to see um, what happens on grass. And um, I am a big Igish Fiontek fan uh, personally. So I, I hope really... you haven't taken my comments personally. No, because I I completely understand where you're going from. Like the the ruthless efficiency of it maybe can be off putting. I just like seeing what her forehand could do um the variety she could produce with it um i i was a roger fed huge federer fan so i'm seeing a lot of similarities in the execution and mm. that sort of how did she do that kind of moments <laughs> but you are quite right with her weakness on grass and she's got plenty of time to evolve on the surface it'll be exciting um, it's 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 certainly not a weakness as much as an opportunity she she's never beaten a top 60 ranked opponent on the surface but i feel like that's one of those stats that's probably going to stop very soon a bit like arena sabalenka's never got past the third round of the french open right um, yeah it's i mean she she got a set off ons two years ago um and was probably unfortunate she was last year and that she played the master disruptor that is elise corne uh but i would agree with you that she's not the favorite on grass and um uh the movement is the biggest problem but the rest of her game is adaptable enough that it should work. I mean, Rafa made it work. It should. It should work. I think she'll have to flatten out her forehand quite a bit because she has quite a Western uh, grip. It's also why Coco will probably never be good on grass unless she gets her forehand and her serve really in order. Um, she has extra time on clay in a way that uh, just grass is not only – not providing but it's also just like ruthless so i do think some mechanical changes will have to will have to take place just because i think you know for roger he had essentially like an eastern grip or a, at most a semi-western grip i think for Iga, what makes her so devastating on clay much like rafa with his with his buggy whip and his extreme sort of rotation to get technical i think the way that he had to take bigger um bigger cuts with less of a backswing I think she'll have to develop a similar style, which again, I think is really cool. It's cool to say, okay, well, you've climbed all of these mountains. Here's some more left uh, in front of you, right? And I think, yeah. you know, the sky really is the limit with Iga. She's, she's got the two things that are really, really hard to coach, which is 
impeccable mental fortitude and resilience and she's got incredible movement you know like there's a ceiling for how much especially the bigger players you know i'm thinking of your like lindsay davenport's or your um you know john isner's or people who can hit big but can't particularly move very well who did well on, on grass um but not necessarily you know certainly on clay or, or some of the silver surfaces Ika has great movement. So for me, it's more of a way that she sort of mentally approaches instead of being so defense oriented, being offense oriented. And I think technically perhaps shortening the backswing, maybe even changing the grip a little bit on the forehand side um, would give her uh, a real fighting chance. But again, it's really exciting to see new turf for somebody to, to potentially conquer as opposed to things feeling like a foregone conclusion, which to me is what we have in the men's side. Um, But yeah, for, for that reason, I I typically prefer the women's game just because there's more people who can credibly, who can credibly show up and and storylines that you don't necessarily feel like are preordained. For sure. Uh, Yeah. Exactly. Same for me. I was like, I I came from as a bit of a fan background. I came from obsessing over the slam race on the men's side for years and then I started watching more and more and more women's tennis I thought this is way more compelling to watch as a product um so I completely completely agree with you well it's better when you because I remember I was getting interviewed maybe a couple weeks ago and they were like don't you feel like it's not that exciting because you don't know who's going to win and it's like do you go into any sporting event where you would wish you knew the outcome you know like no of course the unpredictability the chaos of it you know the Alizé Cornets who float through the jaw the Camilla Georgies, the giant killers, the Ostapenkos, who, you know, she's either going to hit a winner 150 miles an hour or she's going to hit it 20 feet out. Like, I love the chaos. And to me, that's one of the things that makes tennis so special, which is that anybody can beat anybody on any given day. And in some eras with some players, that's more true than others. And in the women's side right now, I hope we're not going to one era of hegemony. I'm okay with there being three or hopefully more big names because I think for me, the men's game got reduced to this grand slam trophy count that sort of devalued the other tournaments, which I find just as, if not more compelling. And all of these other sort of like variable cast of characters, when you had these three guys winning all the tournaments, bending over backwards to be sort of like corporate friendly and be like, Oh, what a great, another great match from another great opponent. It's like, no, I want people throwing chairs. I want people screaming. I want rackets broken. I want the carnage that comes with true unpredictability in the, and the you know emotions barely concealed beneath the surface of people who are feeling the pressure that to me is more exciting not watching somebody you know tap dance to another title exactly um and you get all that just from watching Elena Ostapenko uh, <laughs> um and it's one of the reasons actually I think I'm looking ahead like way ahead but the US Open is going to be fascinating this year because you know you've got these three who are at the top of their game possibly more um with Sviantek, Sabalenka, Rabakina um who um i at the it, obviously we'll have to see how it is close to the time but on paper it's a knife edge between those three who's going to win it totally and you know again you never know it could be the year that daria kasatkina finds her form it could be another seven matches in a row where yelena osipenko can't miss it could be you know uh ons Jibber's time to finally get herself centered and ready to compete match in match out like i think what's amazing about the the tennis we have now and, you know, Novak Djokovic's dominance on the men's side really sort of uh, 
overshadows this, but you just have all these amazing, interesting storylines that are kind of waiting to bubble up. Well, in the women's game, they're already here. And I think you're right. It could be a nice fight between three people, but it, it also could not be. It also could be a, a another, you know, Marion Bartoli uh, kind of Wimbledon uh, run where it's not necessarily expected, but somebody puts together a really great, you know, two weeks and all of a sudden they're lifting a, a, the Venus Rosewater dish on the grass. Exactly. And, and, and Wimbledon's a prime opportunity and like someone like Ons potentially totally. to um, come through from last year. Um, it's great that we're all excited about these, these stories, um, which of course, um, uh, I think we need to just, uh, I, wa- I just want to ask you about, go back to Karina Mukova as someone who is else who we might be hoping will win a major. Is it fair to be very unfortunate if she ends up finishing her career without winning one? I don't know. I mean, I think that to me overemphasizes majors. You know, I think one thing that I really resent that this big three race did was make the other tournaments feel insignificant. If I were to be totally honest with you in imagining myself winning professional tennis tournaments sure i had a dream of lifting a grand trophy over my head but i would take a rome over an australian open because it's a cooler place with a more meaningful history the australian open was mostly played among 24 year old 24 draws of australians only for the vast majority of the time that margaret court competed in it for example which is why she was able to rack up some of those records and why her record is in fact illegitimate right so i think First of all, Carolina Mukova is more than capable of winning a slam. And I think if she is going to win one soon, it'll be Wimbledon. Will it be this year? I don't know. But I definitely think she's a credible contender and somebody to really watch out for now that she's got a little bit of a taste of making it really deep and having a little bit of that experience in the later stages of the slam. It's entirely possible. I also think, um, you know, I would love to see her just have a really solid career and be in the mix for these late stages of tournaments. Because to me, the, what you get on these quarterfinal days where you have four matches in a row and they're all just blockbusters, is just really an advertisement for how compelling professional tennis is. This is the best the product has been for a long time. Mm-hmm. And I think if you were to say, to me, both of the finals were a little bit of a letdown just because of how good the semis were. And I would argue a lot of the other rounds. And I think you don't always get the best matches in the finals on the men's side. That was certainly true. The semis were vastly more entertaining than the final. And I think sometimes you can't control that, but also it overemphasizes the point of listing the trophy versus playing top 10 tennis for year in year out. Right. And I think Mm -hmm. while we as sort of result oriented fans want to see the trophy case be the emphasis, the truth is, you know, looking at a player actually like Alizé Cornet, who has never won a Grand Slam, probably never will, but has been in the top 20 for a decade plus, incredibly made, um, you know, a couple of very deep runs and had a very, a couple of very good seasons. You know, I have to think that that's not nothing. And I think for me, having a a healthy tennis that's not so one-sided where it's the champion and a bunch of chumps, as opposed to all of these matches need to be well contended. You know, like a lot of, yeah. Serena Williams' years were just utterly dominant. A lot of Steffi Graf's years were utterly dominant. Those first couple of years when Roger Federer was beating everybody, it was fun to watch because his tennis is so beautiful, but it got kind of boring. I would argue what's happening with Novak right now is 
a little boring. If he doesn't keep himself out of a tournament due to some unforeseen circumstance, he's the favorite. Is it fun to watch? Yes, if you like his style of tennis or you're a Serbian. For everybody else, it's kind of like, okay, well, does anybody give Casper Rude much of a chance? No, I didn't think so, right? And so for me, the the variety of the the gameplay and the depth of the field, again, like is something that I'm so excited about. And that's where our, you know, obviously our work in racket does, we don't care about trophies. We care about characters and people who are making great careers and long, long careers on this, in this crazy place that is the professional tennis tour. And I think for that reason, you know, that's always going to be my preference. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Do you know what? You hit on so many really good points there because I actually agree with you uh, that we we tend to underappreciate so many players who don't have a major trophy. Um, people who have Olympic medals, people who have Masters 1000 titles. Hey, someone with um, six or even 10 250 titles has had a great career. Someone who made, um, someone who made uh, us uh, super exciting, like... Um, one of my uh, someone, someone on Twitter, tennis Twitter, um, Owen, um, he's been on the show a few, couple of times. Um, he is a big Sara Cerebes Tormo fan. Sara Cerebes Tormo does not have much of a trophy cabinet, but she's a player that's captured the imagination in a lot of ways and definitely did this tournament with that epic against Haddad Meyer that she oh, only yeah. she can produce. Oh um, man, totally. Yeah, I, mean, so, I think like your your David Ferrer's, you know. Like, yeah, yeah, he he came in second place for a lot of the most important matches that he ever played. But I would argue this guy is a warrior and had one of the greatest tennis careers because he did it for, you know, 15 years. And he was always in the top, you know, handfully won a couple of Davis Cups with Spain. Like, that's a that's not a bad career. Yeah, it's, I agree. And uh, I think that we need to appreciate the players for their stories and not for the silverware and uh. I think tennis is best. And somebody just commented that I want to give a shout out to Michael for, for saying the nineties tennis with Capriati, both Williams sisters, henna Graf was ending. Salas was ending. That's a very good point. Moresmo, Maria. Yeah. Uh, Moresmo didn't really come on the scene until like the mid two thousands, but yes, agreed that that was, I don't think it was the peak, but it was a peak certainly. And I think what was interesting about it is that it came at a time when the men's game was really floundering. Agassi had retired. Sampras had retired. Um, Chang and Courier had retired. The Edbergs and the and the Villanders were far gone. And really, the emergence of uh, Roger Federer was still years away. And it was at this moment that the WTA Tour and the ATP had a conversation about merging, which I think would have frankly changed the sport for the better. And it's still something that I'd like to see them do, um, because we know that joint events create the most revenue they get the biggest eyeballs people like seeing men and women play in the same tournament they like seeing mixed doubles you know there's just no downside to having these tours joined um other than just you know a logistical nightmare but i think for me the the real 
amazing thing about what's happening now with all these women we're, we're talking about with the differences in styles i think we have another sort of renaissance happening where it is hearkening back to me to the capriati williams sisters graph you know Moresmo, sharapova era where it's just you there's not an easy first round to be had there just isn't there's no there's very few matches that you're going to get a, a completely lopsided result maybe outside of you know Iga Sviantek's bakery where she's handing out um some bagels and breadsticks in the early parts of tournaments but really you know for everybody else that's not um that's not her that's a pretty uncommon mm -hmm. experience and I like the idea that anything can happen you know on any given day yeah exactly and uh that's that's why we enjoy it that's that's why as you said we we like the elements of people like Elise Corne, Camilla Georgie, uh, Kaya Kanepi being those. Oof, nobody's scarier in a draw to a seat than Kaya Kanepi. <laughs> uh, maybe she's starting, maybe age is finally catching up with her now, but let's see, she might have one more upset. I don't know. Her. I saw her play last year in Washington and she surged to the finals and just took down everybody that was possibly take downable. You know, she's, these players, all they need is like a good, you know, look, Sloane Stevens is another great example. She's yes. got a slam. <laughs> if Sloane Stevens decides to show up for a couple matches in a row, she beats anybody. She beats everybody, you know? And I think for me, that's, again, some of the, the fun parts of, of tournaments, especially if you focus beyond just the four slams, all of a sudden there's this rich narrative possibility where, okay, well, Madrid is at altitude. And even though it's on clay, your traditional clay court specialists don't necessarily thrive here. So maybe it is time for like a Bedosa who's both comfortable with service, but also has giant weapons. Um, you know, that matchup there with Sabalenka is much more compelling than it is between the two of them in, in another context, perhaps. Mm -hmm. And so I think for that reason, you know, tennis just has all these narrative possibilities that we, that I, at least we try to celebrate. And, I, you know, I know you guys do too. Yeah. For sure. So we've obviously been talking a lot about the great product that is women's tennis. So I'm sure that you have strong opinions on the fact that we only had one women's match in the Roland Garros night session. Um, you know, I, I, if, if the Roland Garros night session were an enviable place to play and an enviable time to play, I might be a little bit more upset by it. I think Roland Garros is the best slam. Roland Garros is the best facility. It's the best time of year. It's got it, arguably some of the best history. And yet it has the best stadium in tennis with the, uh, the Simone Mathieu court that's built to look like a, a glass sort of hothouse botanic garden. It's amazing. Uh, but it also has the worst ticket in tennis, which is the night session at Roland Garros. So on one hand, do I bemoan the lack of parity between men's and women's tennis being given equal shift, shrift? Absolutely. And Amelie Moresmo has justifiably come under a lot of fire by both commentators and people in the press, but also other players. You know, Jess Pagula noted uh, that it seemed uh, just egregious that none of the women were highlighted in the, in the evening. On the other hand, what a dumb product this is. I wish the U.S. Open wouldn't do it. Um, I'm glad that Wimbledon doesn't do it. Night matches are a travesty. They're terrible for the sport. They're terrible for the players' bodies. You know, everyone talks about how great the Carlos Alcaraz Yannick Sinner match was from last year's U.S. Open. Local time that happened at 3 a.m. I think they went on at 11. Like, I is great tennis still great tennis if nobody's watching it? Um, so I actually think the product. I'm a little bit more upset the fact that um, you know you turn on the final and uh, it seemed like the corporate boxes weren't completely filled by spectators. So a lot to be improved with tennis. Some of it is the fact that the tournament organizers don't do a good enough job of making sure actual fans 
sit in the stands uh, and it's totally corporate uh, sort of freebies, which is a huge problem at the US Open as well. Wimbledon does not have that problem because they do not allow for the highest bidders to necessarily take the best seats. Those are saved for super fans who queue up the day of, which is amazing and something that is, uh, I think, a lesson that most other tournaments should take. But I also think that playing at night sucks and it's cold and it doesn't have the energy of the crowds. And yeah, occasionally one of those matches will really ignite, but I actually feel like the women, even though they totally symbolically got dissed, maybe were saved a little bit of the, the terrible conditions that playing at night with, um, you know, very little sort of ultimately very little fanfare provided might've been kind of a blessing in disguise. Yeah, I, I agree with you about night sessions. Um, or at least I think that night session. I think the one thing Red Open might have right is having one match in that it avoids the possibility of them going stupidly late because, um, or less likely because, uh, yeah, you're right. The physical toll on players' bodies is not worth it. No one's watching, and yet it's meant to be some kind. It's advertised as some kind of physical feat of excellence that they can do this. And in fact, they're probably unnecessarily pushing, uh, pushing players. Um, I also, you're right, it's one of the worst tickets in that, like, it seems that the top players on the men's and the women's side didn't want to play on the night session. No, Nobody I'll wants to do it. It's just a money grab. It. It's it's a total... Yeah. I also think, you know, men's matches should be best of three uh, for all the reasons. Or, or in the, in the argument of parity, and people like five-set matches, and that's what differentiates them from, um, you know, slams from other tournaments then let the men and the women play best of five from the quarterfinals on, right? So that maybe you're getting fewer options for tennis because if you go during the first couple of days of the tournament, everybody's playing. It's incredible. The buzz on the grounds, oh, this match over here, and oh, I got to buzz out and go see that match. And maybe this, you know, two lesser ranked players who are going to have an epic battle is raging on this outer court. So we got to get out of the main stadium and go over there, right? Like one of the things that's exciting about slams is just the fact that there's all these matches, the 128 size draws just provide so much um, excitement on the mm -hmm. other hand um by the end of the tournament you know the the matches have decreased in number and frequency and so maybe that's the time to introduce best of five on both sides because you're getting fewer matches but maybe they're longer um i have lots of other reasons that i don't like best of five it ruins the bodies a lot of times at least one of those sets is a throwaway set you don't necessarily get the best tennis when you sort of prioritize that but i think part of what you're talking about is the one match can still be a dud if you don't yeah. get a good match. And it doesn't matter if it's best of three or best of five. You know, I would argue that Carlos, or sorry, that Casper um, Ruud made one set of that final pretty compelling, still lost the set. And by that point it was over, right? That's a straight sets win that could have been done in two sets. A lot of people, you know, really like best of five because they remember the last set, but I have news for you. The last set is also the last set and, however long the format you play is. So if you're going to have a tight last set, it's just as exciting for me to have it come after three. Um, but I do think like the, the night match is not necessarily uh, a, a blessing. I think it's a little, maybe a little bit more of a curse. Yeah, it, I, I'm not wedded to the idea of having uh, night session matches. I mean, uh, do you know why Wimbledon doesn't have one? Because of the lights, the curfew. Yeah, it's, it's, it's actually a local, it's local residence. Yeah, <laughs> I, really I think that's light. incredible. I love that, actually. <laughs> I love English. it. It's so English. And also it subjugates the game in a way, because don't forget, not only are these players' bodies getting wrecked and nobody's watching them, especially not in the time zone, but staff, physios, coaches, mm. food preparers, 
the yeah. date attendees. These are all people who are working until four in the morning in some cases, and that's cruel and dumb. Whereas Wimbledon, get your match in or, or have it continue the next day. And there's something very civilized about that that I think respects both the player experience, but also the fan experience and also the work, you know, this is a, this is a field of employment for a lot of people. This is a workplace. Um, and I just don't think it's like a very responsible workplace, uh, you know, way to sort of prioritize your employees. There's a, there's a lot around uh, tennis that we could tennis and the sort of the way it's built that we can uh, think and agree that we can discuss. And I like a lot of your ideas. Um, I am more of, I do prefer five sets, but I think quarterfinals onwards does make sense. Um, especially since you can pack more matches in, uh, less risk of it going late earlier in the tournament and you get more tennis later on. Um, I think a lot of people who are on this channel prefer five sets, but I can see the argument for three sets. It's best of three being quicker when it's a dud match and getting that over and done with as well. Listen, if I, I could wave and my own self decide which matches deserve to be... There are some matches you're watching where you're like, oh, I could watch another set of this. There's a yeah. lot of matches where you're like, I wish this were over now because this nothing's going to change. And I think, you know, we tend to have both recently recency bias, but also a, um, you know, the, the most exciting examples tend to, to, to stand out in our minds. But I think the truth is, you know, they're, they're over amortized over years. Um, especially given the technology and the ability for these players to just last, it tends to favor the type of players who are, um, sort of marathoners, not sprinters. It tends to favor a defensive style of tennis, not an aggressive style of tennis. And, you know, there are, I, I think one of the knocks against the women's game is, like we were talking about, the variety of people who can credibly win. And I think when you have best of five set tennis, it tends to favor the same type of players who like that format better than others. You know, Novak Djokovic is beatable in three sets. He's basically unbeatable in five. Yeah. I think that's the, those are all, valid points and i actually uh can't argue with them to be honest um well, listen, so I, I think right. perhaps our solution of having a dual gender best of five in the last two or three rounds might be a nice compromise because by that point these are the best players in the tournament they're having the best mm -hmm. showings you probably want to see more of them so i do get the argument that more tennis is more um but again if it's more competitive and it's only the best of the best who are sort of then enabled to compete in that extra way i think it might go a long way to but anyway this is this is yeah. sort of like a subject it, 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 for my yeah, podcast it, it, i could talk about this forever and yeah. i often do much to for the sure. disappointment to listeners you know for sure for sure but you know it's it's a reasonable thought like yes you don't want to uh disadvantage certain styles because you know i i really this is the first time i properly watched carolina mukova play or at least for years because i haven't really because of her injuries um, it's been a while since I watched a Carolina Mukova match. And so I couldn't really remember how she was. And so I've like, oh yeah, no, I remember why she's cool. Um, watching her I at Roland Garros. I could have used another set or two of the women's final. Yeah. I was glad that we didn't have any more of the men's final. You know what I mean? Uh, yes, exactly. Um, but you mentioned your podcast and I appreciate you've only, you've only got 45 minutes and we're very, very close to that. We've only got 30 seconds until we hit 45. Um, but do you want to talk a little bit about um, your podcast and maybe any any other projects you've got going on? Sure. Well, I mean, the main project remains the magazine. Obviously, making a magazine and doing all these cool events and merch drops is just the most fun thing I could possibly imagine. Just because tennis, you know, is, I think, meant to tell stories and has enough room 
to not just focus on who gets to lift trophies. So that's been the major effort. Also, we have a podcast I co-host with Renee Stubbs. You can find it in the Renee Stubbs podcast. Um, and all of this stuff lives at racketmag.com. Fantastic. And uh, um, this is all available internationally. It's not locked out on the state side. Brilliant. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for having me. Until next time. Thank you so much for coming on, Kate. It's been absolutely lovely talking to you. And thank you so much for your time and for talking tennis with us. All right. Well, that was... Uh, Brilliant. Um, loved that interview. Um, and one of the absolute highlights for me was uh, the fact that um, we got to talk about how great tennis is and how great women's tennis is. And I don't, I can't remember the last time I had a conversation like that. So I had an absolute breeze. Hopefully um, you will enjoy um, chatting with Caitlin as well, seeing a lot of discussions around um, in the chat around sort of merits of five sets. Um, that's a whole different podcast that could be done by anyone um keep following the channel guys um we've got some more content coming out um i'm very excited that um jamie and i are actually going to be going to the wta 250 event in birmingham uh, birmingham uk not birmingham alabama um in uh net which is happening next week um got some brilliant players involved um there uh, so i'm very excited to to go um obviously um this week on the wta side there's some uh, there's two uh, 250 events going on, one in Nottingham in the UK and one in um, uh, uh, Gottenbosch in uh, the Netherlands. Um, and uh, I, so we're going to keep an eye on those. We'll probably do a show at some point summarising everything that's kind of happened um, uh, on those. And uh, keep an eye on the, us throughout the entire grass court season. We'll be bringing you all the updates, all the and um, all the major updates. Um, You'll be having ATP weekly, WTA weekly, up until Wimbledon. I'm excited for grass. I hope you are too. Um, so I, I will uh, leave you with that. So ATP weekly coming up in a matter of hours. So stay tuned to the channel and tune in for that. And uh, until, until and I'll see you all again soon. Take care. Keep talking tennis. If you enjoyed this video, make sure you hit that like button. Don't forget to subscribe and click that notification bell so you don't miss out on all things tennis. Sports Social Podcast Network. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. <laughs>